Hello and welcome to the Autism News Network, Spark Edition. We're very excited to bring you some awesome content today about the Spark Study. We're going to get into that much more. We are joined by some special guests today. They are from the Spark Team at MUSC. I wanted to give you um, some social media handles uh, about South Carolina Autism Research. That's at SC Autism Research on Instagram and Facebook. And you can go to sparkforautism.org slash MUSC. So without further ado, I wanted to welcome our guest, Dr. Laura Carpenter. Hello, Dr. Carpenter. Good morning. <laughs> good morning, Dr. Catherine Bradley. Hey, good morning. Good morning. We have Sarah Conyers. Hi, good morning. And Jesse Montezuma. Hi, good morning. Thank you all so much for being here. And um, this is really a treat because we all, of course, work together on the Spark Study. Um, but now we're doing a podcast, which is an extension of our work and hope to bring our audience some great information. So first of all, just to start off, I wanted to ask each of you, if you could just tell us briefly, like, where are you from originally? And like, what's your training and career background? And we can start with Dr. Carpenter. So I'm a long way from home. Um, I'm originally from California and I um, went to UC San Diego for my undergraduate work. Um, but um, South Carolina is really home for me. I've been here since 2002 when I um, trained as an intern here at the Medical University of South Carolina. My background is as a clinical psychologist um, and I have actually been specializing in autism since I was an undergraduate. It's pretty much the majority of what I've done for my career. Wow, that's awesome. So it's really been a lifelong, you know, pursuit for you. That's right. That's great. And Dr. Bradley, how about you? Yeah, so I'm also a long ways from home, although I've been in South Carolina about as long as Dr. Carpenter. Um, I'm originally from Pittsburgh. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at Vanderbilt, and then I actually got my PhD at the University of South Carolina up in Columbia. Um, I started working with autism um, when I came to MUSC to work with uh, Dr. Carpenter when I was an intern um, and then stayed for postdoc and um, have not left since. Awesome. And so Pittsburgh, so do I even need to ask who your football team is? You do not need to ask. It's very obvious. Okay. Yeah. She follows the Steelers. So of course. Um, And Sarah, how about you? Yeah, so I am from a small town in the Shenville Valley called Fishersville, Virginia. And so I did go to James Madison University, go Dukes. Um, And so my background is more in public health education and community outreach. I've been in Charleston for two years and I've been with MUSC for about a year and a half now. Okay, great. And Jesse? I am originally from Southern California. I got my bachelor's in psychology and I minored in school psychology and education at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, After graduating, I worked as a preschool teacher in a full inclusion classroom, and that's kind of where my interest in autism really started. And then I worked as an autism line therapist, and now I'm a research coordinator in developmental pediatrics at MUSC, and I'm currently pursuing my master's in education. Oh, that's wonderful. So you're going to stay with teaching? You know, I'm really thinking I'm interested more in working in educational policy. So my concentration is regarding diverse learners, and I have a big focus on advocacy in my program. Okay, great. Yeah, and you're really in the perfect role with Spark because, of course, we're advocating for our patients each and every day. Um, Well, great. So now that we have gotten to know each of you a little bit, I wanted to start with Dr. Carpenter and just ask, going back to the beginning, how did you first get interested in autism? 
So I think um, I knew I wanted to work with kids with special needs in some capacity from the time I was probably eight years old. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a position working in an autism research lab back in 1995. And this was like right before the explosion in autism awareness took place. So I was really just so fortunate to be in the right place at the right time and fall into this incredibly interesting career at this incredibly interesting time in history for autism. Yeah, it really is. It's been a period of unprecedented growth in awareness, but also in the the prevalence of autism. And, you know, we get asked this question a lot. You know, I think, first of all, it's like, is autism truly more common or are we just recognizing it more? And then if it is more common, why are we seeing it more? What's your response to that? So I think the truth is there's probably multiple pathways to autism. And most experts think that autism is really an umbrella term for lots of different disorders. So at this point, our science might not be advanced enough to identify sort of all the subtypes of autism, but it's likely that there are many subtypes um, and many causes. And I think that's a big part of the reason that autism is becoming so much more common. So we've got this growing awareness that autism can present in many diverse ways. Um, 25 years ago, we thought autism was this very narrowly defined disorder, but now we know that the symptoms can present in so many different and diverse ways. Um, And so in fact, um, one interesting thing is that one of the fastest growing groups of people with autism are those with average intelligence or even above average intelligence. And there's this growing recognition that um, these folks can also have autism. Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? Because people feel like, I think in, back in the old days, people would assume you hear autism, they would assume that person has intellectual disabilities, and that's really not the case. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, genetics has been an area of intense research in medicine in general, and um, it's been a long time coming because for decades, we've really been focusing on genetics, um, and genetics seem to play a prominent role in the field of autism. Um, what have we learned thus far about genetics and autism? So it's really complicated. We know that there's not just one genetic cause for autism the way there might be in other disorders. So with Down syndrome, there's a very, you know, specified, clear genetic cause. Whereas in autism, we think that there's as many as 300 genes involved. And we've only identified a small fraction of those genetic causes. So our study um, that we're talking about today called SPARC, um, one of the main goals is to try to figure out if we can determine all of these genetic causes for autism. And I think in the long run, if we can understand all these pathways to autism, it'll help us better match treatment to folks' genetics. Absolutely. And that's really what it's all about, right, is trying to find new treatments. One thing that we all have in common is the SPARC study, as we mentioned off the top, Um, Dr. Bradley, I want to turn it over to you. What is SPARC? So SPARC is really the largest genetic study of autism ever. And so one of the goals of SPARC is to speed up autism research, advance our understanding of autism, really with the goal of helping to improve lives. And so, you know, previous autism research over the years has often really focused on a small group of individuals and families. And SPARC's goal is really to invite the entire autism community to participate in research. Um, You know, we really want to get both children and adults from all across the spectrum, really with the goal of making sure that our research findings 
are applicable and helpful to all individuals with autism. Um, and, you know, like Dr. Carpenter said, we've sort of learned that the answers about autism aren't easy. And having these really large samples is really essential in order to be able to provide meaningful information and resources to people with autism. Yeah, that sounds great. And when we say big study, you know, I think like, oh, a thousand people is a lot. Um, but how big is Spark aiming to be? You know, the initial goal, I think, was to get 50,000 people with autism um, and their families. And I think at this point now, there are over 90,000 people with autism have participated in Spark so far, and it's still going. So, you know, I think the goal is really just to get as many people as possible in order to be able to answer these really complex questions and just understand autism better. Yeah, what I guess it's obvious then that Spark has had an amazing um, ability to generate excitement about involvement in research. Are you seeing that on the ground in South Carolina too? We are. One of the great and neat things about Spark is Spark really includes more than 30 of the nation's leading medical schools and autism research centers. And we're just so excited to be a part of this group. You know, we're hoping that this is really just the beginning of bringing these strong research opportunities to individuals in South Carolina. Yeah, that's it, it is really exciting and um, it's it's unprecedented in its size. And um, for our audience, really, the we talk about power, like a study is well powered. And that just means it has a lot of participants in the study because we can learn like exponentially more from huge groups of people than we can from just a few dozen people, for example. So this has a, a, a potential to really pay off. Um, Sarah, I wanted to pivot now and ask you in terms of the mechanics of the study. I mean, a lot of times people think genetics, oh, here comes the, the blood work, but is that the case in Spark? No, so actually Spark is a saliva sample. So no needles, no blood draw, nothing like that. And so they use saliva because they can use that as a source of DNA to learn more about the genes um, related to autism. And so they asked for a saliva sample from both biological parents as well as the individual with autism. And so it's only around a teaspoon amount. So it's not a lot. It can usually only take around five or 10, five or 10 minutes to get completed. And so when participants register online, the kits can get shipped directly to their house. And in that kit, we'll have all of the information on how to complete the sample and how to send it back. And so there's two different methods of saliva collection. And so the first one is just going to be spitting directly into the tube. And the second one is just going to be using a swab. So it kind of looks like a Q-tip, but it's a little sponge. And you just put it in your mouth and that's how you collect it if you can't spit. And you just wring it into the tube and then you can send it back that way. So um, the great thing about doing home visits and community events with us is that we can actually walk you guys through the registration process and help with those saliva collections as well, which is really, really helpful for the participants. So we're kind of um, there to assist them in any regard in, in that saliva collection process as well. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. And one thing, that, another wrinkle to this that I'm not sure we mentioned yet is that there's certainly a participant that has autism and we want to get as many um, you know, participants who have been diagnosed with autism as we can. But then this study also involves the mom and dad, right? Um, so can you explain yes. to people what a trio is? Yeah, so a trio is just the mom, the dad, and the individual with autism. Um, siblings are also invited to participate as well, but that is completely up to them, and that is their option. So. Yeah, um, it's, it's always funny because when we do the trios, you know, being part of these collections, I always laugh because the dads, you know, usually have no problem spitting, you know, like <laughs> no, we get that, you know, sample real easily. Yeah. Sometimes the kids, 
or, you know, they do it pretty well, but the moms, it cracks me up because moms don't spit, you know, as much, yeah. <laughs> I guess. And, but they, but we get it, don't we? And it's a painless process. Yeah. It's kind of, it can be a game for the kids too, to see who it's a race. Who can get it done first. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Um, yeah. So I, is, is it fair to say that the families um, are, are fun to work with and like, have you had some good experiences, you know, in absolutely. It's, it's just, it's really fun. And there's so much more than just a saliva collection. So the study really involves so many other aspects rather than just that initial um, saliva collection. And so it really is more than just a one and done study. I always say that it's an autism research community. And so in addition to providing the saliva collection, they also have the ability to read a ton of different articles. They can subscribe to a monthly newsletter, updating them on, you know, different what's going on in the autism research community. They have webinars. It's really educational. And so in addition to that educational aspect as well, they also have opportunities to participate in other research studies across the nation that are going on. Um, and they also have that potential to get a genetic result related to the samples that they send in too. So that's also very unique to the study. Um, and Spark really encourages families to continue um, and stay engaged long term and continue to participate in research in right. the future and not just right now. Yeah, so that's interesting. So parents can opt in, for instance, if they like say a treatment comes around five, 10 years down the road, they can opt in and say, hey, I want to be contacted if you know some new treatments develop. Exactly. Yeah. They can participate in research studies, you know, across the nation, not just technically in, in Charleston too, which is really, really cool. Yeah. And, and I think it's really great because I think for, you know, typical families, you know, um, working through autism and some of the challenges, it's like sometimes a helpless feeling, like what can we do besides advocate for our children? And this is not only a great way to advocate, but also participate in advancing the field, you know, one family at a time. So that sounds really exciting. Um, okay, I wanted to switch over now because we are in the world of COVID and certainly the entire planet's had to adapt to this new normal. And um, Spark has made some adaptations. And Jesse, can you tell us a little bit about how Spark is adapting to this new world? Yeah, of course. So prior to COVID, like Sarah had mentioned, we often held events and we would do home visits where families would come and enroll in the study. And we would also table at other events in the community, such as the Charleston Walk for Autism, in order to just kind of spread the word and you know, get people involved in knowing about the study. But since we are unable to host or participate in those kind of events due to COVID, we have switched gears. We focused more of our efforts on encouraging families to enroll online since the study can be completed entirely from home. We always say, you know, you can watch Netflix and participate in research at the same time. What's better than that? <laughs> yeah, that's... That's awesome. <laughs> but some families do prefer to have more hands-on help because the saliva collection for some people can be a little tricky. And so we are still offering home visits, but we have added in additional safety and sanitation protocols in order to ensure, you know, we're keeping our participants and our staff safe. That's great. So you can come in with the masks and, you know, with gloves and make sure that this is done in a safe way. And if the parents or families choose to participate with that hands-on assistance. Yeah. Yeah. And we... We're also talking about hosting an outdoor enrollment day where families could reserve a time to attend. So that way only one family at a time is present and we can maximize social distancing efforts. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So we're not allowing COVID to grind autism research to a halt. We're adapting and overcoming and keeping things going forward. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, now, Jesse, you've recently started with Dr. Carpenter, Dr. Bradley and Sarah, um, a new venture 
as a resource um, over social media for families. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so SC Autism Research Opportunities is a social media page we've created in order to connect individuals and families with local research opportunities. So we also share autism resources, news, and research publications. You know, we have understood that research can feel pretty intimidating to some people. And so the goal with the page is to help kind of bridge that gap between researchers and our community. Yeah, and it's a great follow. Again, it's at SC Autism Research on Instagram and Facebook. There's, to be honest, there's a lot of not so great information out there on social media. And SC Autism Research is a good follow because they provide evidence-based information, little tips, little factoids, and ways to get involved that you can count on because, you know, that's a real big um, need out there, some accurate evidence-based information. So give them a follow. Um, okay, so we are um, just wrapping up here in a moment, but um, wanted to talk about, um, I think, a newsmaking or a very newsworthy topic that came out earlier this week and wanted to see what you guys think about this article. It was out of Ontario, Canada, and it involves over 600,000 expecting mothers, and they found a significantly higher um, rate of autism in moms who had smoked cannabis during pregnancy. So obviously that's creating quite a stir. Um, Dr. Bradley and Dr. Carpenter, do either of you guys want to comment on that study and, and its implications? Right. So this study found that women who used cannabis during their pregnancy were one and a half times more likely to have a child with autism, which is really dramatic. I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that the study design can't tell us whether cannabis use during pregnancy causes autism or whether perhaps there are other factors that might increase the risk for both cannabis use and having a child with autism. But I think even putting all of that aside, I think the take home message here is that women need to avoid using substances during pregnancy that haven't undergone rigorous evaluation. Um, and so, you know, when your doctor provides prescribes you a medication during pregnancy, it's one that has been shown to be safe for pregnant women. Um, and I think sometimes people are um, under the assumption that a substance that's natural is safe, and that's just not true. And I think this is giving us a little bit of a glimmer um, of insight into the fact that natural doesn't always mean safe. Absolutely, that is so well said and just very helpful. Um, yeah, Dr. Bradley, I know uh, you had seen that online. And what do you think about the, are you seeing a pattern out there of how the community is reacting so far? You know, I haven't really seen a lot of it. I think, you know, people are focusing largely on this study, you know, and there have been a lot of studies that have shown, um, you know, that substance use of a number of different kinds during pregnancy can lead to increases in neurodevelopmental disorders, ADHD and things like that. And so, you know, just reiterating what Dr. Carpenter said of this idea of avoiding substance use during pregnancy, especially, you know, I think this idea of sort of natural um, substances as well. And, you know, one thing I often think about is that, you know, if we think that something can have a positive impact, even if it's natural, it can also have a negative impact. And I think people don't often think of that side of the coin and think about, you know, even if it's natural, if you believe that it can do positive things, then it can also have some negative side effects. And I think that's why it's just important for people to, um, you know, follow along with their doctor's advice and make sure that the um, 
any kind of substances or medications that they're using have been approved um, for use during pregnancy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what a unique opportunity we've had today to hear from experts in the field of autism you know, about current topics and current studies. And that's what we do here at the Autism News Network. So I wanted to thank all of you for being here today. Um, again, we have been um, joined by the MUSC Spark team here on the Autism News Network. And I want you to check out Spark. It's sparkforautism.org slash MUSC. And you can also, again, follow SC Autism Research. That's at SC Autism Research on Instagram and Facebook. You can follow us on theautismnewsnetwork.com. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can follow me at Dr. Burnett on Instagram and Twitter. Um, we thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, and uh, for our audience, we hope to see you next time. Thanks for joining us.